The clock is ticking down on the Kansas Republican primary for U.S. Senate, a competitive race among attorneys Chris Kobach, Congressman Roger Marshall, plumber Bob Hamilton, and retired NFL player Dave Lindstrom, and a few others you've probably never heard of. They're all trying to clear a path to the seat held by retiring Senator Pat Roberts. With us today is Mr. Kobach, a former Kansas Secretary of State. Welcome to you. Great to be with you. Excellent. So let's start with a couple of basic questions that people who don't know much about you might ask. Why the heck are you running for the Senate? Well, uh, people who do know a little bit about me know that uh, I have taken some strong conservative stands on a variety of issues in my career and have accomplished something in those areas. So one might be as Secretary of State, uh, I wanted to make Kansas the most secure state in America against voter fraud. And we accomplished that. Uh, Kansas became the first state in America to combine photo ID with equivalent security for mail-in ballots and proof of citizenship at the registration process, um, as well as uh, prosecutorial authority in the Secretary of State's office. Um, I have a similar set of priorities right now for the U.S. Senate and, of course, with our nation in crisis uh, from a variety of sources and reasons, uh, it's extremely important that we do these things. Um, so just to, to rattle them off real quickly, uh, number one, uh, in immigration, I've spent the last two decades of my career uh, focused on illegal immigration and border security. Um, right now, the president doesn't have a point man in the U.S. Senate who knows immigration forward and backward, knows it better than the staffs do. Um, I would be that person and would carry the ball for the president, would make sure that the wall gets built. Um, indeed, for the past year and a half, I've been general counsel for We build the wall, which is building private sections of border wall, something that's never been done before in American history, um, and uh, make sure that we close. Uh, I know where the loopholes are in, in our uh, immigration laws. So, for example, uh, many of the caravans caused by people uh, using a loophole in our asylum law to knowingly come to the United States and falsely claim asylum um, because of the way our laws are written. We can make a few changes to the to the phrasing of those laws and stop that loophole from being exploited. Second issue, uh, judges. Uh, I taught constitutional law for 15 years before I became the Kansas Secretary of State. And I think it is essential to stop activist judges from getting appointed to the uh, Supreme Court or to the inferior federal courts. And this, the U.S. Senate is the last line of defense. Um, I think protecting our courts from activist judges has the effect of protecting our Second Amendment rights, the right to life, our First Amendment rights, the Constitution itself. And uh, there aren't that many people in the U.S. Senate who have the expertise to really grill a judge and be able to tell from the judge answers and ask the follow-up questions. Is this judge really who he says he is, or is, is this judge trying to conceal something? Um, so that's the second issue. Third issue, spending. Um, as many people know, when I was Secretary of State, I cut the budget of my office from $7 million a year to $4.6 million a year, a 34% decrease. Uh, no other agency in Kansas uh, cut its spending uh, over that period by anything close to that amount. In fact, I, I'm not aware of a single office that cut it at all during that period. Um, so I'll take the same approach in the U.S. Senate. I think we we are at an extraordinarily astronomical level of spending. It can't be sustained. $26 trillion in debt and counting. Now, we need serious people who are serious when they say they're going to cut spending. There are a lot of Republicans who talk tough about budgets, but they actually don't do anything when they get there. I'll do something. Okay, let's go to, uh, I'm going to clock you here, 60-second stump speech version of uh, who you are. Um, I grew up in Topeka. Uh, 
did well on some standardized tests and went out east to school, um, Harvard for undergrad and and uh, Yale for law school and spent a little time overseas and then came right back to Kansas, uh, a law professor uh, for 15 years and then became Kansas's secretary of state. Um, I am a consistent conservative and people who follow my career know that I'm not one of those politicians who promises one thing then does another. I, I follow through. I'm also the father of five daughters and uh, that's one of the best elements of who I am and what my life is. And I'm, I'm also a Christian, um, saved and I, uh, that that's important too. That's part of who I am. Okay, good. That's a good summary. So in the past, you've been an ally of the president, president Donald Trump. And has he, has he lost some of his affection for you? No, not at all. Uh, I speak to the president very frequently. Uh, my last conversation was with him just a few weeks ago, either three or four weeks ago. Um, we talk all the time. Uh, I started advising him in the 2016 campaign uh, before the uh, New Hampshire primary and started advising him on uh, immigration law and election law, my two you know specialties over my career. And uh, we've been talking about those issues ever since. Uh, we sometimes talk about judicial nominees. He asked my opinion, for example, on um, then-Judge Kavanaugh uh, before he nominated him to be a Supreme Court justice. So, uh, yeah, we get along very well. I, if I'm in Washington, D.C., I usually go to see him. And uh, regardless, we talk on the phone very frequently. Hmm. So uh, are you angling for an endorsement? I would imagine late in this primary race, if, if one of one of you all got endorsed, that would be very significant. Um, I, I am not uh, because the, I realize the president is, is is being pushed in multiple directions, and you know he, he has his personal friendship and loyalty to me. Uh, at the same time, there are people in the establishment, most notably Mitch McConnell, who would like uh, my more moderate opponent to be to get a, an endorsement, and recognizing that the president has you know different forces pushing on him um i haven't asked him to endorse you me. figure the president is going to keep his powder dry through the primary i i think so okay the cantons for life they have a political action committee decided not to endorse you i've always thought that was kind of odd i know you're a um, uh, pro pro-life candidate why didn't they? You know, Kansans for Life made a curious decision. I think it was a mistake. They, they've endorsed me four times in the past, uh, and even they acknowledged in their, their interview process that if I were to get on the, the Judiciary Committee of the Senate, I could be one of the most uh, effective pro-life forces in the U.S. Senate. But they decided to play politics and, and basically be, become odds makers and say, well, we think that um, y- your probability of winning the general election might be slightly less than Roger Marshall's, so mm-hmm. we're, gonna, we're not going to make an endorsement based on pro-life credentials. We're going to make an endorsement based on, um, you know, reading the tea leaves. But, you know, while they made that decision, I was heartened that Kansans Coalition for Life endorsed me, Operation Rescue endorsed me, and Dr. James Dobson endorsed me, who's probably one of the most, if not the single most prominent pro-life voice uh, in America right now. One good thing for the Republican nominee, whoever it turns out to be, is that no Democrat has won this uh, a Senate seat in Kansas since 1932. Correct. Can you explain why Barbara Bollier is raising so much money? Eight times, I think, what the other Republican candidates are. What the heck's going on? Well, I think it's part of a, uh, a larger national thing that's going on. It's, it's not just in Kansas. Uh, all across the country, Democrats are outraising Republicans. Uh, after the first quarter, I haven't seen the updated numbers since the second quarter, but after the first quarter of 2020, uh, Republican candidates in total were more than $30 million 
dollars behind uh, mm. Democrat candidates. And this includes Republican incumbents who are being outraised by Democrat challengers. So it what's happening in Kansas is part of a national phenomenon and, and it's national money. So Bollier's uh, getting a getting a piece of that national money that's going to all of these uh, Senate seats that are being contested. I would suspect that outside out-of-state money is going to come in in, in buckets Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and the Democrat candidate, it's already come in for the Democrat candidate. And and, and there's no denying that it'll it'll come in for the Republican candidate, whoever he may be, such as the the value of an open seat to the United States. Yeah. You know, I mean, the the U.S. Senate, there there are only four open seats this year. So Mm -hmm. that means that Kansas is of interest. You've let in some polls. The polls are kind of spotty and we don't get them all. I wish wish we could see them all. We'd know more about what's going on. But at various times, you've had 29 percent up to 40 percent, I think in 2020, at least. And so you appear to be, we can call you a front runner. Uh, maybe Roger Marshall is, is in there. It's hard to say. But why do you think that is? Do you think it's name recognition having run statewide? I, I think it's a combination of name recognition and the the record that people know I have. If you ask the, you know, pick a random voter in the middle of Kansas, uh, what do you know about Chris Kobach? They would probably say he's a conservative. He sticks to his guns. He's very, he, he's a diehard conservative. He doesn't roll over. He doesn't become something else after he's elected. And among Republican primary voters, that's really important because Republican voters have gotten burned so many times by people, you know, wearing the Republican label at election time, and then they get into office and they vote differently. They know that with me, um, I am who I claim to be, and that is a consistent conservative. And if I say I'm going to do something, I'll do it. So I think that that track record is probably why I've been leading in the polls. I've seen a scorecard of votes by Congressman Marshall, and it suggests that in the past he was kind of a middle of the roader, uh, but suddenly yeah. he's voting in the upper ninety percent <laughs> with the president. That's exactly so, right. So, so what do you make of that? Do you think it's somebody who's just trying to drive drive to the right to win a Senate nomination, or did he have a change of heart? Or uh, I, I think he's uh, I think his most recent statements and and votes, but it's mostly statements that make him sound like a conservative are simply him putting on a show to try to win the Republican primary. I mean, you you have to look at what he did in office, and his votes make clear that he is certainly far to my left, and I would say more moderate than most Republicans. I mean, he he openly said in 2016 that he was with John Kasich from day one. Well, that, that says a lot. So I was endorsing President Trump at the time. He was endorsing the most liberal of the 16 or so Republican presidential candidates. He made fun of President Trump's wall in 2017 in front of the Wichita Pachyderm Club. He said he didn't think it was feasible. He joked about Mexico not paying for it. Um, now, all of a sudden, he's for the wall. Um, he voted against a bill that would have only cut federal spending a tiny 1% in non-defense spending, I would have voted for that bill and I would have said, let's cut it more than 1%. So uh, on a host of issues, he's got a very liberal record, but now he's trying to sound like a conservative for the Republican primary. Voters know that I've always been conservative. In terms of this privately funded border wall, the president, I thought, criticized the work on that wall, like structurally criticized it. And I, I wonder what you make of that, but also as a consultant to this organization, do you make money from that? Um, So the answer, uh, yes, as as an attorney, I serve as the attorney for their organization. And the answer to the president's, uh, he did tweet, he retweeted an article, and the article was about a section of border wall that was actually constructed and designed by Fisher Industries. We build the wall, um, provided 
about five percent of the funding of it. Okay. But but the but that he he wasn't criticizing the 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 main wall structures that we build the wall, which are done to the exact same standards as the uh, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol are done. Which, you know, they look exactly like the U.S. wall, the ones that the federal government is, is uh, paying for. And the the one that he was criticizing, or what, that the article was criticizing that he retweeted, is a, a prototype intended to demonstrate that you can build right along the river of the lower Rio Grande. Mm-hmm. Right now, the Border Patrol is building on the levee, which is about a mile back mm-hmm. from the river. Right. And so Fisher Industries wanted to prove, they built this three-mile section. They wanted to demonstrate you can actually build right on the river, and it, it's workable. It well, won't cause flooding. change course, you know. Well, that's, and, and that's one of the things they wanted to prove. They wanted to show that you can do it without um, affecting erosion, or affecting the course of the river. I mean, and, and flooding change of that's what an oxbow is <clears throat> right exactly exactly and so they, they were trying to demonstrate and, and to demonstrate to the board troll hey here's a here's a way you could do it in the future and they asked us for a you know a small percentage to help raise the money to do it okay you talked about federal spending cut something for me oh. cut something cherished by many people um how about uh spending on the national endowment for the arts we can cut that and i think we can do across the board cuts uh, not the just just bad or no but i mean it, look, look art is be doing. it's it, it, a lot of the things that the national endowment for the arts um supports or you know that money goes ends up going to are things that have a very left-wing political um content to them so we could certainly do that and across the board cutting um I, you know not just one percent but a significant amount one of the ways that i, I cut the budget of the secretary of state's office by 34 percent and cut it each year year after year was through natural attrition we've got an opportunity of a generation literally uh, because the baby boomers are retiring uh, eleven thousand people a day are retiring a lot of them worked for state government when i was secretary of state and a lot of them work for the federal government what that means is you can shrink the workforce without firing anybody. And so if somebody retires, you say, okay, this person's retired. Can we take her responsibilities and give those three responsibilities to other people in the office and, and avoid hiring someone to replace? And that's what we did. So through attrition in the Secretary of State's office, you reduced the staff, but did you reduce it too far so that you didn't meet deadlines for no. turning in required reports, et cetera? No, no, we didn't. In fact, we ended up doing more because we were uh, implementing uh, our new uh, voter laws. We were also uh, taking measures to uh, clean up the voter rolls and such. So, you know, it, I think we uh, ended up doing more with less, and that's what people should demand of government. All right, let's talk about COVID. Uh, what do you think of how the president's handling of the pandemic? I think the president's uh, handling has been very good of, of the pandemic, and especially um, what he did at the very beginning when he was criticized so harshly uh, from the left for shutting down travel from China and then from Europe. And that is exactly what he needed to do. And um, one of the points I've made in, in writing my columns for Breitbart is, you know, if only Congress had gotten the president the funding for the wall is you know early in the administration in 2017 rather than 2019 we'd have several hundred more miles built and the reason that's relevant is in a pandemic the first thing the leaders of a country must do is close the doors you want to determine who's coming in and who's go- who well who's coming in is the main thing you have to ask is there any information that suggests that the illegal immigrants coming in across the southern border are a bunch of COVID? Well, the interesting thing is, uh, and I wrote this in my article, uh, in fiscal year 2019, approximately 12,000 Chinese nationals successfully crossed the border. Now you have to, then that was, of course, the epicenter of the virus. And so statistically speaking, the probability at that time was higher. I don't think they were COVID infiltrators or anything, do you? Not, not, not intentionally coming in to, you know, to infiltrate the country necessarily. But the, the point is, when you have a pandemic, you have to be able to, you know, 
check everybody coming in. And when you have mm-hmm. a wide open southern border, you can't check everybody coming in. All right. Contrast that with what your sense is of how Laura Kelly, Governor Laura Kelly, has handled this. I think she has exceeded her authority. One uh, court, one one federal district court, already found that she exceeded her authority in the way that she shut down church services uh, and did so in violation of the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Um, I think that she is again exceeding her authority with her mask order. The legislature in early June passed a statute, and I've read that statute word for word, that that you know, reshaped how we do emergency declarations in Kansas. Mm-hmm. And she does not have the authority in that statute to mandate uh, the wearing of masks. Um, so I think she's exceeding her authority again. Do you think that'll end up in court as well? I think it probably will. You're not, you didn't, you know, there's, we're in an office here. I took my mask off to try to talk into this microphone, but you didn't wear one today. Is that a personal decision? Do you feel like a mask rule would be an infringement of your personal liberty? I do. And I, I also think, look, I, I carry a mask with me. I usually have one either in the pocket of my jacket or in the, you know, in the car. I always have one in the car with me. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to go into a really tight space where we're going to be, you know, <laughs> one foot away from each other for an extended period of time, yeah, then I might wear a mask. If I'm going to get on an airplane, I'll be wearing a mask. If I'm going to go... So you you wear it sometimes, depending on the circumstance. Right, and I think... And this has illustrated a real difference between the parties or or between the people of different ideological perspective. Conservatives like me we favor liberty. We favor responsibility. So if I'm going to, if you and I uh, are going to be in a room, we have to make a decision. If we're, Are we going to wear a mask or not? But that should be our own free choice based on the information we have. And we should take responsibility for whatever happens. And the left throughout this whole pandemic has always taken the approach of heavy-handed government control. No, you shall not be given responsibility. The government will tell you what to do. We will tell you when you can stop. And we will tell you uh, what you're going to do next. And I think it's been a real interesting unmasking, if you will, of the parties, because you see how the Republicans have consistently been for liberty and responsibility. The Democrats have been for government control. Is there some limit to that? Uh, Because people carrying around essentially a toxin and sharing it with their, the people they encounter, is there some limit to that personal liberty? If, if you, you know, people are not supposed to knowingly give others AIDS, right? Uh, so what if you have COVID, don't tell anybody, and do you think it's your personal liberty not to wear a mask and you're just wandering around Walmart spreading it? Well, so if there is a situation where the individual, the, the people are 100% going to be in a dangerous environment, like like on a bus, let's mm-hmm. say that. And by the way, the bus industry has been hit hard by this too. Sure. Um, then it is absolutely fine for the government to say in that bus where it, no one can reasonably deny that you're just so close that you need you need to have masks. I think in those limited circumstances, but they're, but they're very limited. So we need nuanced executive orders rather than sweeping um, ones. Yeah, or or really good recommendations and data from the government so that people can make good decisions. So uh, you were Secretary of State in Kansas, <clears throat> Chief Elections Officer from 2011-2019, left office after you lost the governor's race in 2018. What did you learn from that particular campaign that might inform how you run for the United States Senate? Um, you know, one of the interesting things about campaigns is that after you win, so I've been in three statewide races, I've won two, lost one, and after you win, you rarely engage in any sort of, you know, reflection and analysis of, okay, here's what we did. This was a great decision. This was a bad decision. You just You're say, a genius. You won. Yeah, we won. Oh, I, we must have done everything right. And in, in contrast, 
when you lose a race, you go back and you look very closely. Okay, where where did we not get as many votes as we thought we, you know, for example, one of our objectives was to get the same number of votes that Brownback got in 2014. And actually, we ended up getting about 20,000 more votes mm-hmm. than Brownback got. Um, but the thing that nobody saw coming was an 80,000 vote blue wave in Johnson County. 80,000 extra Democrats voted in the third district over the normal the number that normally votes in a non-presidential election. Went from 90,000 to 180,000, mm-hmm. uh, 100, 170,000. And that, that wave uh, hit all the campaigns. Anyway, back to the question. Yeah, we did learn a lot. So we looked at, um, say, for example, Sedgwick County. We looked at Sedgwick County and saw that our, the number of votes we got were, was smaller than what we thought we were going to get. And so we put in place for this team, this election, an entirely different team um, handling Sedgwick County. Um, We looked at parts of the state where uh, voter turnout was not as high as we had hoped, like out in western Kansas. Um, With that in mind, we are using a different advertising strategy in that that area. So it it really gets down to the the fine-toothed comb and (laughs) looking through for everything we can change, and that's what we're doing. So you were one of the champions of a proof of citizenship uh, provision law uh, for people registering to vote. That was challenged in court. You actually carried that to trial and did not prevail. I think it's on appeal. But yeah. what do you think about losing that case? You know, one of the things I've learned uh, as an attorney over the years, and I've been litigating not just election cases but immigration-related cases, is that if it's a politicized issue, meaning it's one of those questions that people have strong political opinions, so mm-hmm. like immigration, like you know, photo ID, proof of citizenship for voting, um, it, you know, it matters who your judge is, and you know. You're, you, in some instances, you, instances, like if you get a court of appeals panel of three judges, you can look at the three judges and say, oh, we're going to win or no, we're not going to win. And that's a shame because, you know, I think we all would, would, would like to live in a world where the name of the judge doesn't matter at all. You're going to get the same result no matter who it is. It's so, you're appealing to, this is being appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes. And it's important. You, you, people are doing the math there and looking precisely at what you said right, at right. the justice to figure out who's yeah, right, who's yeah. left. And I think and that's in, why the, there's promise, promise to, to that yeah, appeal. No, I'm very, I'm very confident that at the Supreme Court we will win because I know who the justices so are. So this gets back at the and, activist judges. You know, people don't want fair and balanced judges. They want judges that vote the way they, they themselves want the decision to come out. You see what I mean? Well, but I will say this. When I criticize activist judges, I'm not... Activist means a judge who steps out of the judicial role of interpreting the law neutrally and steps into the role of rewriting the law to fit his or her preconceptions about what policy they like and what policy they don't like so they can strike down policies they don't like. Activist... Republicans like... Conservatives like me who are originalists, we just want the the law to be interpreted as it was understood by those who wrote it. The Constitution to be interpreted as it was understood by those who wrote it. So, if it doesn't, if the law as as it was written doesn't work in our favor, so be it. But it is the it is the other side, the activists who want judges to change things, and they inevitably want to push things um, to the left. A couple of lightning round questions, and I know I got to let you go, but. Congressman Steve Watkins of Kansas in the 2nd District has been recently charged with three felonies, and it's uh, related to his uh, messing up his voter registration form and, I believe, an absentee ballot. He voted, uh, he voted without his proper residential address. So is it very common in your experience as Secretary of State that people write down the wrong address on such a form? It is common in 
candidate when candidates file for office for there to be address disputes the state objections board which the secretary of state is a member of the attorney general is a member of and the lieutenant governor is a member of uh, the state objections board routinely hears I mean, every election cycle uh, i remember things address disputes so i can give you one example i think it was john whitmer um he was a state rep and he wrote down an address uh, that was a house that was under construction his it was, house yeah it and was he his wanted house. to be in a certain district but so he, was, he pitched a tent out at an unfinished <laughs> house so that he could run for a certain kansas so, office. so right so there was a dispute about whether that was a legitimate residence or not uh-huh. there was another case jan paul she's now right. passed away but right. um she and her husband were had bought a church and they were renovating the church to turn it into a residence and uh, at the time that she registered to run for office she it was not a residence yet and so she was challenged as hey you're 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 it's filing a, it's, at something that's, that can't a defunct church building right right and so that went to the board so these disputes over addresses are yeah they're very common charging somebody with a crime is not common Right. And, and that that is correct. Although, of course, you know, when I was secretary of state, we did uh, prosecute double voting, which is, you know, a very dozen or so cases. Maybe? Yeah, a dozen or so yeah. cases. So yeah. finally, and, I, and I'll let you go. I know you got to get out on the stump and, and go win your election. But um, why should people go vote in this August primary? Let's let's give give them your pitch. OK, well, why should people care? Well, first of all, they should care because they this is a there's a real difference between the candidates and it's not like a normal Republican primary where everybody is, you know, identical. There there are big differences between me and the person most polls shows in second place that's Roger Marshall. Um so whether it's um his not being willing to cut expenditures my proven record of cutting expenditures, whether it's his making fun of the wall, my building the wall, uh, the cattleman's issue. Uh, there are thousands of ranches that are going out of business. 6,000 cattle ranches in Kansas have gone out of business in the, almost 6,000 in the last 20 years. Um, there is legislation that would bring back the small and medium-sized packer in, packers in Kansas. It's in Congress. It has 48 co-sponsors. Roger Marshall won't sign it. He's opposed to it. I will sign. I will sign on, and I will push for it. That's a big difference between us. Um, voters know that I do what I'm going to, what I say I'm going to do. They also know that I'm not afraid of criticism. I'm the only person in this race who's been called out by name by Chuck Schumer, by AOC, by Sheila Jackson Lee, and by Rachel Maddow. And there's a reason, and that is that I've had some success in uh, pushing for changes in areas that those four don't like, and so. I'm not going to curry favor with the establishment in Washington or the New York Times or the Washington Post, or and certainly not with AOC and Chuck Schumer. Uh, I, I don't care what people say about me. Uh, I recognize that I work for the voter, and uh, I will fight for them. All right. Chris Kobach, former Kansas Secretary of State, candidate for governor, now running for the United States Senate. I want to thank you for being on our podcast, the Kansas Reflector. I'm Tim Carpenter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.